0: Hello, and welcome to the fourth virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World. I am Tony Ganser, an uh, afternoon host at a public media organization, IdeaStream, here in Northeast Ohio. This month, will the world will mark the 20th anniversary of UN Security Council Resolution 1325. This is a landmark resolution that specifically addresses how women and girls are differently impacted by conflict and by war. Perhaps more importantly, it recognizes the critical role that women can and should play in conflict prevention and resolution, peacemaking and peacebuilding, and by extension, the ways women define security. This anniversary comes as the coronavirus pandemic, of course, continues to upend lives around the globe. For women, the effects of the pandemic are especially acute facing job loss and financial and economic instability, threats of physical, emotional, and or sexual violence, and in some places, extreme conflict and humanitarian crises. Women are at risk of experiencing severe, negative, long-term consequences, often without advocates informing them and working specifically to secure their physical and economic well-being. Around the world, women make up only 10% of national leaders. And today we'll talk to a panel of experts in women, peace, and security about this unique moment in time and what it means for women and the future of women's rights globally. Tonight I'm joined by Sharon Bhagwan Rolls, board co chair for the Global Fund for Women. That's a grant making foundation that promotes women's human rights and women's programs around the world. Ms. Bhagwan Rolls is a well-known feminist activist in Fiji. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, and Bula from Fiji Islands.
0: Oh, fantastic. Uh, Also joining us, Gina Tori, Director of the International Center for Dialogue and Peace Building. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: And Dr. Anna Poles, Senior Lecturer at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at Massey University in New Zealand. Thanks so much for being here.
3: Kia Tony. Thank you for having me.
0: That's great. As in every City Club forum, you can participate, and we hope you do by sending your questions. You can text them to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. That's on your screen. Three three zero five four one five seven nine four. You can also tweet them at the City Club. Somehow, through a series of tubes, they will make it to me, and I will fit them into this program. Uh, it should be really great to have your participation. So just to start, uh, maybe Gina and, and Sharon, can you maybe put a little more flesh on the bones of 1325 and kind of explain uh, how big a deal this is, and then, and then quickly get us now 20 years on from that? Maybe, Gina, you want to start?
2: Well, I'd like to start with uh, the you know the beginning. It, the Security Council was around for about 40 years before they even thought about the inclusion of women and girls and the impact of war and whether or not it was important that they participate in post conflict peace building. And so um, if you can imagine, in, in 2000, uh, the first resolution on women, peace and security, uh, resolution 1325, the 1,325, Resolution passed by the Security Council uh, was passed specifically recognizing women's, um, part- the importance of women's participation in uh, situations of conflict, uh, recognizing that uh, they have different needs um, and that war impacts women and girls differently, and that the participation inside of political life is essential. Um, and I like to, you know, when I talk about 1325, I like to say that uh, this is the first uh, resolution that literally uh, grew legs and walked right out of the UN Security Council, and she was picked up by women building peace all over the world. And so, it, on this level, this this resolution was not just landmark, but absolutely extraordinary. And it was also extraordinary from a political from a political perspective because. Um, this wasn't, this resolution was not brought by one of the major superpowers. Um, this was brought by a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council, Bangladesh. Uh, so just, you don't have to be the most powerful um, or the biggest to do something world-changing and extraordinary. And, um, and certainly, uh, Sharon has done some amazing work in Fiji across the Pacific and across the world. And so she is known to um, all of the leaders um, carrying the Women, Peace and Security torch um, as, a, as, as an important figure uh, over the last 20 years. And so while there is still a lot of work to do, um, I have to say that a lot of extraordinary work has been done. And so Sharon, I
1: Thanks, um, thanks, Gina. I mean, I, I think for me the 1325 is really an important legacy of the, the women peace activists from around the world, including in my own Pacific Island region, um, who have who were advocating organizing um, throughout the 60s and 70s, you know, into the UN decade for women around issues of demilitarization anti-nuclear movement, decolonization as well. And Pacific Island women, including women who I've had the privilege and honor to work with uh, from Bougainville, were part of the the group of women um, at the United Nations um, who presented the petition for this Security Council resolution, as Gina said. And I think what's been important in terms of The localization agenda um, starts with my story, if you want. Um, It would have been the 1st of of November here, um, but on the 31st of October 2000, when the Security Council resolution was formally adopted, I received an email from a very important mentor of mine who was then part of the NGO Working Group on Women, Peace and Security, which is how I got to know Gina. And she said, with your community media work as we were just starting after our own crisis in Fiji that year, with your community media work, you now have a resolution from the Security Council um, to to organize, to mobilize and, and to bring women, not just on the sidelines of peace and security, but really at the center around prevention, around protection, around how we um, advocate for peace with justice, how we advocate on the role of military in the Security Council. Um, And that's how we're doing, that's how I got to know about the resolution and that's how we started to localize it. So Gina's very right in saying that it it literally sailed across (laughs) from New York all the way to the Pacific. as a way of saying that this is not going to be just limited to the Security Council, but this is about women's rights in the context of peace and security at the United Nations, Tony.
0: Just a quick follow-up for you, Sharon. Um, I guess a, a question some people might be wondering about is, Um, What took so long, I guess, for for this resolution? Because the way you describe it, it seems like self-evident that this should have been baked into United Nations work as it is. And yet we're talking just 20 years on from a resolution where everything you're saying, again, it just it seems so self-evident. And maybe that's 2020 uh, perspectives being applied on that. But maybe can you give us a little context
1: Sure. I mean, I'll start by saying, you know, this is the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. It's also the 25th anniversary of the adoption of the Beijing Platform for Action, which was um, a very important international policy document that member states adopted back in 1995. And And that journey itself started a whole 20 years earlier when, um, I always say a little bit tongue in cheek. 1975, when it was, you know, the of the year as uh, the, uh, you know, the International Year of Women, and so began the decade for women. So even though we had women from member states uh, being part of the important foundation, including from the U.S., it literally took, you know, this kind of 1975 for women for the UN to go, oh, there are women out there, and, and that's, you know, that's the challenge in terms of progressing women's rights and, and, and gender equality. So on one hand, we've had um, the Human Rights Treaty Convention around the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women, but it did take a little bit longer with the Beijing Platform for Action with the UN convention on, on women um, or women's rights to then get this work going after the Beijing conference because at, at, in 1995, it was looking very narrowly at women in armed conflict. And the work then continued as women in in the five years after the Beijing conference to say, we're not just limited to being regarded as victims in times of armed conflict. We are leaders and we're here to prevent conflict as well. So I think that was all the work going on behind the scenes.
0: Yeah. On on that point, uh, maybe if we can go around and talk about now – that it has been 20 years since this resolution uh, was passed. Uh, If I read correctly and counted correctly, I am a journalist, so forgive me, but I think there have been seven uh, amendments uh, since then, or maybe um, reassertions of of what was in the original resolution and then gone a little farther. Um, So maybe, Anna, if you want to start... where are we now? Twenty years on, kind of, um, what do you see maybe as as one or two successes um, uh, that that we've gone from there? And we we can talk about negative stuff later, but maybe we talk about the the positive things to start.
3: Thanks, Tony. Yes, uh, as you said, there is a there's a stable of resolutions that accompany thirteen twenty five. There's around. Uh, 10 from recollection of additional resolutions which support various elements of of 1325 and are a part of the stable of world and women, peace and security uh, agendas. So one of some of the positive things that we've seen is, is increasingly an understanding of expanding the definition of women in peace and security we're getting beyond finally getting beyond this idea of just add women and stir and that's sufficient Uh, but really understanding the need to look at broader issues and the role of women in not just uh, conflict and war but also in climate change humanitarian disasters uh, pandemics as we find now um, sexual and reproductive health uh food security all of these these various different elements and dynamics uh in which women's involvement is absolutely critical are now increasingly being seen as as important parts of the conversation and we're starting to certainly in New Zealand and we uh, we developed our first national action plan in 2015 and are now currently this year developing the second national action plan. There's increasing awareness of the importance of involving civil society in the conversation as well. So that's a real positive, but also looking at uh, at both internal issues to New Zealand, such as very high rates of domestic violence as being critical to New Zealand's WPS agenda. So it's not just about offshore policy, but also about those domestic factors which shape and influence Women, Peace and Security as well. Tony.
0: Just a quick follow-up on that before we go to Gina with some positive thoughts. Talking about thinking about this domestically, that reminds me something I read. It was, it was criticism of the UK's approach, saying that their national action plan was given to the foreign office, and essentially it was considered, this is, this is a, a foreign thing. We don't need to worry about these priorities domestically, but it sounds like New Zealand's taking a different approach.
3: Well we're not quite there yet, Tony, unfortunately. This a similar it's similar thing happened in New Zealand where um, the New Zealand Defense Force very much has picked up the the picked up the WPS and, and the Ministry of Defense certainly has, similarly to a lesser degree with the New Zealand police as well in terms of their offshore deployments. But it's also part of this kind of othering that goes on as well. Um, and the sense of so women, peace and security issues. Resolution 1325 and 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 the other res- related resolution are all things that we do offshore. We do overseas as part of deployments, for example, into the Pacific, rather than some some uh, internal reflection to look at how. How these are playing out in New Zealand, and we have significant issues in New Zealand with where there is intersections between domestic violence, Indigenous rights, and so forth that we need to be thinking about in the context of New Zealand. So there is a, there is hopefully going to be we're going to see a shift perhaps hopefully in the second national action plan this year, but we'll have to come back for another conversation about that after, after that's out.
0: Uh, Happily, we will. Um, uh, Gina, maybe some initial thoughts, some positives here 20 years on from 1325. Got your microphone there, Gina.
2: Sorry about that. Um, While it's important to focus, you know, while there's still a lot of work to be done, um, it is important to focus on some of the positive things that have happened over the last 20 years. Um, Part of that is uh, an increase in women's political participation. I think that Security Council Resolution 1325 and the subsequent resolutions really uh, put women's political participation squarely, not, all, not just on the agenda of the UN Security Council, but um, across, for instance, the United Nations system as a whole. Um, and I think that you, you now see many more leaders within the UN system who are women. And I—and even though the peace table still has a lot of men around it, there are increasingly increasing numbers of uh, women mediators, women mediator networks, um, and women who have uh, who've taken on uh, this agenda, as you know, Sharon has shared across across the world. And I think that this has also led to uh, the emergence of uh, younger women who girls, younger women and girls who have grown up in a time where women's political participation matters and is possible. And so one of the things that uh, that I've observed is. That, for instance, climate. Climate has been picked up by young women all over the world as their women, peace, and security issue of their time. Uh, and so you'll see Huge numbers of young women uh, campaigning for for, for climate um, and for the improvement of, uh, of of our of our of our climates, and I think that that has a lot to do with the women peace and security agenda. I think they've been inspired, and I think they've picked up issues such as climate change um, as uh, as a peace and security issue.
0: Great, uh, Sharon. Uh, positive thoughts here. Twenty years on.
1: I'll pick up on the climate change issue, because uh, back in 2015, um, our neighbouring island of Vanuatu had experienced a massive uh, hurricane, as you refer to them in the US, so category five storm, um, which is completely, you know, it it basically decimates um, island communities and villages and we were meeting as a network of peace builders in Fiji, and environment security came up as as an urgent issue for us. So um, we started to unpack the issue around why are we talking about um, or how do we make that connection between what has been seen as peace on one hand, development over there, and humanitarian in another area. And and so as the Pacific, we, we lobbied hard. And in, we got in um, a new resolution adopted that year, as, you know, following the global study of 2015, uh, Security Council Resolution 2242, which had two words, which was so important for us as Pacific Island women, and that's climate change. And so it brought our issue into the Security Council. It has taken a little bit of time, but now you can see that the Security Council is starting to talk about climate change and climate security a lot more. And and as Anna said, you know that resolution I think was important not just for us, but but you know peace activists around the world who were also talking about health pandemics. And so. The WPS agenda for me has been an opportunity for us as women on the ground in our local communities um, to really demonstrate what peace and security means for us. Um, This year in uh, Bougainville, just as women are continuing to sustain the peace after armed conflict, after a referendum at the end of last year, they have been able to use their skills in uh, peace, peace negotiations to secure a, a seat or two seats at the um, at the Disaster Management uh, Committee uh, addressing COVID-19. Otherwise, women were out of that. So what we're seeing is a change and women driving a change to, to talk about the nexus of peace development and humanitarian action and climate change because that's we're talking about our lives so we've been able to use this legacy of 1325 to to steer us in a very important path of being able to claim our space and now of course you know as Gina said we still don't have enough women at the peace table. So we're talking about redesigning the table and actually using 1325 to challenge the status quo and say, uh-uh, um, no, it can't be like that. It's got to be something different, Tony.
0: Yeah, just looking at uh, one article I read, it said during the period between 1990 and 2017, women made up only 2% of peace mediators, 8% of negotiators, only 5% of those uh, witnessed or signed agreements in all major peace processes. And I wonder if you can talk about, um, I mean, I don't know who wants to to take this first, but the toll that that has on kind of a farm system to to give people talent and also to empower women in, in the, the negotiating space, the diplomatic core that they have experiences they can build on and then help to kind of mentor the next generation too. So maybe can you talk about the toll it takes that when, when they're not at the table or it's a, a poorly designed table, as you say, Sharon, uh, that, that there are kind of knock on effects that, that we have to deal with too.
1: Sure, I'll start, but I also know that, you know, Gina's done a lot of work around the UN and Anna as well. I mean, I, I was just in the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to um, an amazing woman peace builder in, in Bougainville, Agnes Titus, who, who, got, who, who was the woman who basically just recently redesigned uh, the disaster management uh, table in, in her, in her um, province. And we were talking about the need uh, to invest in intergenerational learning and intergenerational organizing, because exactly that. We are getting older, um, and we want to see a stronger, vibrant uh, movement continuing. But for women on the front lines, particularly women who have gone in and negotiated with um, with with armed combatants who have, as they say in Bougainville, literally broken the bows and arrows and contributed to to where this this place is now, and even in the Solomon Islands, uh, in, in my part of the world, but in many other countries as well. I think where, uh, and I'll use the word disservice because I think you know sometimes we we talk about you know let's support women and let's get them to the table, but we're actually not seeing the resources to sustain women's peace activism. So we all know how hard it is and how hard it is for women to keep organizing and fundraising. And that's where um, my work and, and my engagement with an organization like Global Fund for Women is really important because it is about mobilizing resources to get to the women on the ground so that exactly that, they have time for self-care, they have time to pause, they have time to reflect and re-energize and get into the political process because it's ongoing. Peace-building, peace activism, it's not a project. Right, Gina and Anna?
2: Absolutely, and I, you know, I would add to that, Sharon, and say that you know there, there's a path to the table and oftentimes women aren't in the spaces where they get taken into the path to the table. And to, to a certain degree, um, the peace table is still largely the domain of men in suits and cigars, if you will. And, and, the, and the fact is that these, uh, you know, inside of the peace and security space, um, staff are brought up from other places. And oftentimes you do not have women being brought up. You have men who are who are finding, you know, good younger men and bringing them up. And so it is a kind of old boys network where the boys are there and they're bringing up the younger boys and there really isn't yet an old girls network. And so oftentimes when you have mediations, when you tend to have lots of men in the space because... That's um, that's who's been in the space as staff, as mediation support staff um, in uh, in national governments, and so to a certain degree, um, this path to the peace table is 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 systemic in terms of making sure that, that women um, are are also being being brought up um, in inside of these positions uh, and. Uh, so we don't have to kind of go around hunting for women mediators. They're out there, um, but they're they're not part of uh, what has been sort of the status quo.
0: Did you have thoughts on that, Anna?
3: Yes, I'll just add to um, a couple of things that Sharon and, and Gina have said. So the absence of women hits at all levels, and I'll, I'll just give you sort of a couple of examples of that. Um, in so, for for instance, the lack of women. Uh, the peace table has direct implications for a, a conflict uh, being resolved long term. And there's been a significant amount of research done on that. And in our in our own region, Sharon, my region, in terms of Bougainville, we know that from the successes of those peace agreements signed in areas which are matrilineal, for instance. Um, and we know this also from other areas uh, around the world where peace agreements have held. And uh, statistically, the involvement of women is critical to that. But we also know in other areas. So, for instance, I'll give an example from from Cyclone Winston, which which Sharon mentioned earlier, um, which with respect to even understanding the on the ground implications of when a force, a um, a military is deployed in and is setting up a camp for internally displaced, uh, and is building. Toilets, for instance, latrines, um, far away, thinking that that would provide privacy, as opposed to that actually becoming a security risk. And I've seen this in in um, in various different scenarios in, in the Pacific and and in Southeast Asia. And then, of course, you know the an example from Timor, where women played a critical role in the resistance, um, but when the UN came in they found themselves displanted from decision-making roles and we, and that was since back in the late 90s early 2000s and then to you know the, the un general Assembly over the past week where only um four roughly around nine out of 190 um speakers were women so that's around 4.7 percent so we see this this enormous sort of disjuncture from on the ground and then and then what's happening um at the within the international system and those decision-making roles, and the importance of targeting all of that. and that needs political will, and that needs budgets and money put towards that.
0: There's often a lot of attention by people in the media. Uh, who focus on personalities, so you look at an Angela Merkel or a Jacinda Ardern, and you say that because they 're women leaders, they must be better. Uh, one of our questions is, do women have a different perspective than men or or what is what is going into maybe the fact that that peace negotiations are more long term when women are at the table that it 's not just about personalities it 's about what they're bringing as as whole persons in in this, uh, maybe Anna, you want to comment on that first?
3: Sure, thanks, thanks, Tony. Yes, I mean certainly, only through um, twenty twenty and with uh, with uh, the pandemic, there has been a lot of focus on. The fact that countries um, that are led by women uh, have systemically better outcomes with respect to the pandemic—shutting down earlier, locking down earlier—and and less um, deaths uh, than those countries not. So there's some interesting research around that. But I think, um, and there certainly is, there is something to be said for the fact that that women. Can have these broader perspectives and more inclusive ways of communication, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm I'm always a little bit cautious of of taking a particular sort of gendered approach to to leadership. Um, but we do know that it does make a significant difference for outcomes uh, across across society uh, when we have women in leadership and decision making roles. Thanks.
0: Any other thoughts on that before we go to a next question, Sharon?
1: Maybe if if I could add, I think it's it's important to have definitely more women um, as as heads of state. That does make a difference. Uh, it, I mean, not just in terms of optics, but obviously it it shifts because as Gina said, otherwise it's. It's the men in suits or the men who've had guns and their boys um, at the table. But I think we also need to invest in um, women's leadership at the official level. So because we know negotiations happen not just when the head of state is there, but how do we also ensure that there's across government and accountability to equality, to the equality agenda, to the peace agenda. And when you put those two together, the human rights agenda, that it is about men and women together and, and making sure that you've changed that. So we have to also change the thinking and the mindset of men. Um, and at the same time, supporting women's activists to be in those official spaces. Um, if 2020 is gonna change anything, It's got to be that uh, governments, intergovernmental organizations, including the United Nations, have got to be able to find a way to to redesign the table so it's not us coming in, you know, from the outside and and knocking on the door and saying, can we make one three-minute intervention? Uh, We've got to be included in in that shared decision-making to to reach those uh, positive outcomes. So I think we... um, yeah, it, it's a start, but we need to have more women in leadership right throughout. And in countries like in the Pacific and other other communities, um, it's also important to recognize women's role in traditional leadership, uh, women's roles within the faith communities as well, and, and building different levels of leadership, young women's leadership. Uh, in academia, in research institutions, so I think there's there's a need to kind of really build up women's leadership across the board. Yeah,
0: Gina, did you have thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, and I think and I think it's also important to ask um, to ask the question: Which women? You know, m- most women, many women lead differently. Um, but just you know, as Anna said earlier, throwing women into throwing a woman in and mix doesn't always you know, isn't always the best result. And so, we also have to be um, conscious of the fact that it's it's not just adding women in mix, but uh, but that which kind of women also matters.
0: I am fitting in your questions as we go. If you have a question, you can text them to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. 541 5794 It's on your screen, three three zero five four one five seven nine four. 541 5794 You can also tweet them at the City Club, and they're popping up on my screen here. Uh, one question, I'm not sure who wants to take this, so so please volunteer, but how— uh, does the women peace and security WPS agenda fit into the larger women's rights agenda for the UN? are they are they complementary or are they competing for resources in some ways? Um, I, I wonder if someone wants to to jump in. Sharon
1: Thank you. Um, that's a really good question because I think um, you know broadly, everything about women's rights is is really important. Um, and for me, the peace and security agenda, women's rights in, in the context of peace and security is very much part of the, the broader drive to ensure that there is equality um, in, in development space, in the peace building space, at the community level. Um, my personal reflection has been that over for some time, uh there was there was a little bit of uh of a gap because um maybe the the thinking that peace building isn't pushing hard enough you know um even though we've had uh the w p s agenda has to be seen within a human rights framework and similarly um, some of the peace builders uh, that i 've worked with don 't necessarily understand and see the human rights framework so it, it's once again it comes back to supporting the different groups to be able to work together and understand the the different ways of work we 're not all homogenized we 're not one sort of lump of here are the women <laughs> so i I think it's always good you know conflict isn't bad when you are sort of testing and engaging with each other but the competition of resourcing is, is not about uh, the competition to within the women's groups. I think the, the issue here around resourcing is whether there is actually equitable resourcing from member states at the United Nations uh, by our governments into the gender equality, women's rights, peace and security agenda. So when you've only got you know five dollars and there are 10 of you, you're gonna scramble for whatever you can get, but if the pot got bigger, um, as you know, in terms of the commitment to the agenda, then we would have a a, a greater and and deeper collaboration than simply trying to look for resources. So it comes back to the fact that we don't have enough resources for women's rights, peace and security, you know, gender equality. You
2: know, and to add to that Sharon, that's where, you know, terms of member state participation in the UN, this is where the United States could actually play an important role. The United States compared to other countries, does not give as much extra allocated funding to, um, to these kinds of issues. We have countries such as Norway and uh, the United Kingdom and a few others who give, give extra to the pot for gender equality, which includes Women, Peace and Security. Um, but, uh, but the U.S. has yet to step forward and to, um, to, to, to spend just as much uh, of, their, of, of an extra allocated, not general budget, but extra allocated resources to the United Nations. And if they did that, This would change the face of the world, and um, the lack of U.S. leadership in this regard um, has been detrimental uh, to to gender equality issues and other issues across the board at the U.N.
0: Maybe can you expand on that, Gina, because I know the Obama administration signed a number of executive orders related to a WPS agenda. Secretary Hillary Clinton uh, famously was championing uh, women's and, and, and rights for girls as well around the world so where does the us stand here is there is there a a firm commitment i guess in the united states national security complex or or is it something that's fairly fickle that can change depending on who's in the white house
2: it's fairly fickle, uh, but commitment by our elected leaders in Congress and Senate to supporting the work of the United Nations is incredibly important. And this is one of the reasons why the UN has been systematically underfunded um, for decades by the United States. Um, and so, uh, you know, for everybody listening out there, um, uh, tell tell your congressmen, your senators, uh, congresswomen that uh, that that funding the United Nations is Imperative. Uh, it it does help the world. The money is is, is well spent, um, and we need we need the U.S. The U.S. leadership at the United Nations in in this in this regard. Uh, we need uh, we need the U.S. to be stepping up um, fin- financially, like other countries such as Norway, the United Kingdom. I could go on. Uh, have stepped up and given extra resources.
0: Anna, um, I was reading an article about India's. Um, I guess internal conflict dealing with uh the WPS agenda. And there it took me on a, a roller coaster of emotions where it was it was talking about a, a uh women's only police force that would be deployed. Uh I think it was Liberia, if I remember correctly. Uh, but then it said that once the the women police officers arrived, they were kind of relegated to a caregiving or or secondary role i i hate to say women's role but like the stereotypical caregiver right and it seemed like such a missed opportunity that as as i was reading this article i was like oh it's a success oh no what happened uh, so does this illustrate maybe some of the the challenges of getting sustainable uh progress especially thinking about a women's security as just security, like it's, it's, uh, there are many issues, not only certain kinds of issues that, that are defined as security issues, uh, if that makes sense.
3: Yes, I think, think, think so. And I certainly that example from, of the women's um, police contingent uh, in Liberia, and there have been other examples as well of smaller initiatives that have taken place, the idea being that uh, women uh, it would enable access into parts of those societies in, in, the, in the host countries, whether Liberia or elsewhere, uh, which would be obviously beneficial for a number of reasons. Not least of all, having a, a better understanding of what the issues, the insecurity that those women are facing, that societies as a whole are facing, as well, getting a broader, deeper picture of it. But we see often uh, th- these things are often very much missed opportunities. There was a, an example from from. Timor in 2007, where a, a women's unit was informally stood up by, by the commander, by the, the, the mission commander, because he saw the importance of, of having women in key roles, being able to, in terms of outreach, in terms of being able to gather information and intelligence and so forth, but also building those ties between an intervention force and community. Um, Unfortunately, often these initiatives are championed by individuals and when they're replaced, they fall down as a consequence. Of that. But that group was, was, that unit was particularly helpful because women knew exactly what was going on in society and they also knew how to fix it. Um, and in order to have access to the information, you need to have various different actors involved in 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 that and I don't, there's a term that's often used as sort of women as force multipliers in the military and, and that's quite an ugly kind of way of framing it uh, but certainly having units of of women who are able to get a far deeper access into societies than necessarily other units is incredibly beneficial and just makes good sense um, it's remarkable that it hasn't really been stood up as a as a sort of standard practice. Um, but also it's also important there too to ensure that men are also incorporated into that as well so that they can also learn from that experience and see why it's important. So it doesn't just become a women's activity but rather it becomes and I hate, again hate to use this phrase but kind of mainstreamed across all all, all um, operational activities but so there needs to be buy-in there needs to be buy-in from from um, from those involved in, in that as well so it, it is a uh, it's actually that that unit actually did have some real successes in Liberia um, in terms of being able to uh build trust as well uh to with women uh, and so i would hope that we see more of that and more of an understanding as we've seen uh, in afghanistan as well uh too um, with the women's units there more of an understanding of the role that women can play both at the so-called kind of pointy end of security uh, but also um but also more broadly across all uh, elements of security too tony
0: do you have thoughts uh, to expand on that, Sharon? Especially this idea that uh, Anna was talking about—that individuals maybe are are putting forward ideas, or or trying to embrace a new way of thinking, or or standing up against a, a system that is uh, stagnant, to put it in a nice way, um, to to make more fundamental change in these directions.
1: Absolutely, I mean. Like I said earlier on, the the Women, Peace and Security agenda from within the Security Council is really a transformative agenda. So I think, you know, it's not a a stagnant, uh, it's not just words on paper. And and from the localization approach, from the series of reviews that have taken place, the review of, um, you know, peacekeeping operations also in 2015, I think there's been a real opportunity to also... Mm -hmm take this agenda and what women have been saying into the other arms of the UN system that is addressing peace and security. I was recently interviewing a woman, actually, a police officer from Romania who had been deployed to Haiti. And uh, she had done two deployments, and it was really interesting to hear her experience around um, the work that she was able to do in communities in training the local police force. And, and so I think these are the little stories that need to be picking up as well, because um, the, the women who have gone out at the forefront, and, and I really am, am quite convinced that we need to integrate WPS far more into policing than just in terms of military deployments um, for several reasons. One, it strengthens national secu- the national security agenda, to be more accountable and more more just and we're seeing this across the globe um, on why we need better policing um, and and also this is an opportunity policing is actually an opportunity provides greater opportunity for women to come in and rise in the ranks so i'm really proud of of a uh, a woman from Fiji who is leading a police uh, battalion um, in, in terms of UN missions. Um, and she's, you know, she has addressed the Security Council. She was the first woman from Fiji, so I'm a little bit jealous, but um, to to address the Security Council and talk about peacekeeping. And so I think it's really important that we are getting, um, th- there is a growing accountability to women's participation, but I, I think um, around the whole peacekeeping and security sector, we need Need to be bridging the gaps and having activists talking to women who are part of the security sector as well to better understand. I've tried to do that because we need to understand their work experience, their, you know, what has it been like in the field to, to, to better to better support each other and to move this agenda forward. So I think there's, this should be part of, you know, not just the next 20 years, but, you know, maybe next year we can all talk. <laughs>
0: Uh, a question, uh, Gina. Maybe, uh, would you say American women are fully participating in security decisions? Um, I guess you could you can think of that in in a number of ways, but maybe from national security first.
2: Well, I think that uh, the the U.S. Uh, has a has a long way to go in terms of women's um, political participation, um, particularly when it comes to participation within the, the national security structure. And I, I think that we we have some ways to go. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put it like that. We, we have some ways to go. and um, And that's where, you know, hopefully if we come back in five years or 10 years, we've made a lot more progress than, uh, than than we have we have so far because I think it's it's again the, the realm of international peace and security is still largely one that is inhabited by men, including in the US.
0: Uh, I know in the United States, uh, there was, maybe it was just posed like this in the media, but uh, a few years ago, you had Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, who was top of the national security world um, in in the U.S., certainly. And then you had Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook uh, out with her lean-in book. And Anne-Marie Slaughter was saying, women can't have it all because you have to make a choice and the systems aren't Aren't built to support them if they if they want to make choices about having a family, uh, and uh, some of the articles I've read have have been saying that really our systems need to recognize that 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 you have to approach inclusion in an inclusive way that that it really needs to be kind of a wraparound approach to accommodate. Uh, different life situations and and choices that that people want to make about their family life and also be able to be included uh, on these career tracks uh, in the same way that a man might be uh, included and he's not facing uh, the same decisions. I wonder if you have uh, thoughts on that specifically. Uh, Maybe Gina, you want to start and...
2: I mean, but we'll, certainly, the, the realm of international peace and security is unfriendly to women who um, who have families and and need to go back home at a certain hour, for instance. And you can say the same thing for other sectors. But I think um, the realm of international peace and security is is demanding, and so the the comment that you can't have it all, um, I think, it's a fair one because there are some there are some trade offs that one has to make, and um, and so until we uh, we have a system that is perhaps a bit more flexible, um, but perhaps a bit more uh, equitable in, ter- in terms of there are equal numbers of women and men uh, occupying the same in different positions, um, I, I think it's still going to be a struggle for, for women who largely do um, a lot of the, the caregiving and, and, and that kind of thing. And so it's, it's, it, it's a challenge.
0: Any, any thoughts on that, Anna?
3: Thanks, Tony. I think uh, just very briefly, I think it was incredibly telling when uh, the New Zealand Prime Minister Ardern uh, had a baby, uh, had her baby um, while she was in office, and that came under a lot of scrutiny, and you only had to have a quick... Look at the media headlines to get a sense of what that tells us about how society still views women's roles uh, in these very, very linear, one dimensional type ways. Now, we, we very rarely would ask the question of a, of a male prime minister or president how he's managing. Uh, raising children at the same time as running a country so we still have a lot of work to be done both in terms of societal attitudes but also in terms of a revolution within the institutions themselves to better support all people who have different responsibilities but enabling them to be able to succeed and this is something that certainly within universities it's an enormous issue I think that this is uh the pandemic and and the past uh, six to eight months um have really revealed uh, the pressures put on, on people as a consequence of having to work and raise families uh, from, from the living room. And, and this is something that a great deal more work needs to be done in terms of acknowledging the stresses upon, upon women, but also in terms of supporting the choices that men want to make as well too, which may be not uh, those traditional masculine roles either.
0: To go back to Sheryl Sandberg real quick, I I think it was just last week in an interview with NPR uh, that uh, her foundation uh, did a survey. It said one in four uh, women who was surveyed uh, was considering leaving the workforce because of this pandemic, just the stresses of uh, educating their children and and trying to to keep their families together. So uh, this is, I guess, where I want to go with that fact is is the pandemic, um, could it endanger some of the progress that's been made, uh, certainly over the last 20 years, but even farther in the time horizon? Because as we see in facts like that, women are are suffering from the pandemic in, in an exponential way, and if there's still farther to go, and yet we lose ground in this pandemic, what do we do and what can we do? Uh, so maybe any, any thoughts on that, how the pandemic is going to affect uh, where we are and where we, we want to go? Maybe, Anna, start and we can go around to everybody.
3: Uh, sure, Tony. That's a great question. Um, There's a recent Save the Children report that came out, and it refers to 25 years of progress now being in peril as a consequence of, of the pandemic. And it lists a number of, of incredibly alarming statistics with respect to, to, to women and girls. Uh, things like um you know the economic impact on 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 women and girls uh, and putting more into poverty increasing you know something like 1 million additional adolescent pregnancies uh in 2020 so these kinds of very real implications are incredibly important but so is the fact that uh there was a survey done of around 87 different countries and around 115 or so um, decision making bodies dealing with COVID responses across the world. And it found that the numbers of women on those boards and decision decision making advisory bodies was incredibly low. And the figures were around something like um, 85% of those boards uh, did not include women in decision making roles. Uh, and when we look at the impact of COVID, the fallout, both economic and societal, cultural, and so forth, on on women and girls, we need to have women in those decision making um, bodies. It's just common sense.
0: Uh, Gina.
2: Well, recently this week, Bloomberg—or maybe it was last week—Bloomberg reported that uh, we may see the first female recession, and this could wipe out decades of progress for U.S. women because U.S. women, just like women all over the world, are being disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And uh, to give you—you know—to to give you an idea, there is still a gender wage gap in the U.S. Women make 81 cents to every dollar a man makes, and it's—and you know—and and it's being reported that um, that post this crisis pandemic, um, women could see a two percent decrease in that number. And so this could set women back. It could literally set women back decades because you have women who are dropping out of the workforce to uh, homeschool children who have to be online and, you know, and there's no one else to do it, taking care of family members. And so, you know, while it's important that we change our structures at our peace tables and in other institutions, we also have to change the way that our internal family dynamics and structures work. So it's not just that this is just put on women, but that, uh, that others, you know, our men included are, uh, are sharing, you know, are sharing the, are sharing, are sharing the space and, uh, and the, and the responsibility. So, um, so I think, I think that we, you know, we're, we're heading into, um, into a situation where we really need to, to look out for the welfare of, of women here in the U.S. and around the world to make sure that we don't have that slide.
1: Sure. I, I guess I was really lucky. I I had a father. I mean, he was politically conservative. My mother was more left wing, but you know, he supported her as a working mom, and in, and he was the much better cook, I have to say. But I've grown up. I think you know in in a somewhat sort of traditional space um, to to see men in leadership. And I'm so glad, you know, I have a feminist brother who's leading the Pacific Conference of Churches here in in, out of Fiji. So I I think there's hope, Um, but I I just wanna pick up on the fact that um, because both Gina and Anna have talked about the change that women's leadership brings. And um, I've been observing the impact on the U.S. because of my role as co-chair of the Global Fund for Women, and I get to work with an amazing American woman, Latanya MatFred, who is, you know, the CEO of Global Fund for Women, and to see how she's not just driving work, but also being accountable to the women, the staff at the organization. And recently, we were having a conversation about, you know, maybe people are going to have to be working four-day weeks just to give the rate all of this extra work and pressures and working out of the west coast of the U.S. where you've also had forest fires. Uh, So I think that that's really important to recognize, that there needs to be a change in the way of thinking. Um, We've been able to see um, how women have been organizing even – in in the Pacific region, where you know our national carrier is not flying at the moment, we had close to you know several hundred people just lose their jobs immediately. The planes stopped, and and that's had an impact um, on our tourism sector, and that's an issue for the Pacific Islands, you know, um, in general. But what we've also seen, and we've also seen in in um, women's organizing around gender justice at the time of COVID. Is that they are organising in their communities using traditional systems, which I think has some of the values we have to reclaim from our indigenous communities of the giving, the sharing the system that's happening uh, um, around the globe at the moment. Are stepping up to support um, greater work around the domestic violence lines, um, making sure that you know people are being responded to. They're working to maintain reproductive health services. health is going to be the end of the day. So making sure that these services are run Also in the U.S. but we, you know, I've been really proud to be able to have women up women who are standing up justice as an issue. Um, that is affecting women across the globe. Some of us face it historically, but but that this is where you know all of these different issues. The COVID nineteen has unveiled to some degree. The fact that we have been dealing with a number of crisis situations from climate crisis to racial injustice, but the feminist movement, the women's rights movement at country level in communities globally are showing a connection to what needs to happen to ensure, coming back to the WPS agenda, that communities are safe, that people feel protected in their homes and outside their homes as well. Downers in terms of the the real economic downers, resilience and having um I'd say the women's rights movement, the feminist movement um to to continue to step up and, and show that even when times are hard, we are making a change because we want peace and security starting in our homes.
0: That's great. Uh, the connection was in and out there, but I think we got the 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 main points there, and it's a a great point to uh, begin to close on. But I do want to give a last opportunity to Gina and Anna, uh, if if you want to expand on that. But just a, a final thought, maybe on security and women and and the next twenty years uh, of WPS. Uh, Gina, maybe you want to start.
2: Oh, yeah. I'd like to say that, you know, women's participation, women can be participating anywhere. It's not something that's just in the realm of the UN Security Council or in big cities, but it's all over the world. You know, women can lead on issues that matter to them. They can lead on issues of climate, on food security, on the economy, on homelessness, on nuclear security and disarmament. Women can lead um, in their local communities every day. Uh, and that is part of the women peace and Secur- security agenda, and that is part of fulfilling a global women peace and security agenda. And so the more women we have actively going out and taking leadership roles in their communities, um, this contributes to women peace, and security women peace and security's progress worldwide. And so I would just encourage uh, our listeners out here to, um, to go out and to, to, to take on leadership. Um, in 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 the areas that matter to you, uh, and in that way, you are fulfilling the women, peace, and security agenda. And you know that's what I look forward to. Um, in you know in the next twenty years, is uh, is 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 an even greater progress, um, despite all of our all of the challenges that we face as we walk against the wind sometimes.
0: And a, a final thought, Anna.
3: Oh, I think Gina captured that perfectly. <laughs> In fact, I think just to reiterate that, that the Women, Peace and Security Agenda is very much sort of everyday politics for for women around the world. It's about the choices we make. It's about the leaders we support. It's about the accountability we call for. Um, amongst our leaders and it's about the small things that we can do to which make significant changes even if it doesn't necessarily feel like it's on a a global scale Um, but every every action matters and supporting supporting women's groups uh, being actively involved if if uh, where possible Uh, and for men as well I think it's fundamentally important that they are Enabled to be to confidently work in the space as well uh, to bring about the bring about the change that we all want to see.
0: That's great, thank you. And uh, uh, Sharon, just a, a quick final thought.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, as I mentioned, financing is so critical, uh, particularly when only one percent of international gender equality funding gets to grassroots women, and, and like I said, the WPS agenda, women's peace activists need to be supported um, and resourced because this agenda is part of a transformative movement for us. It's intergenerational. It's part of a future that we're laying down for in our country. So, you know, if you're in the US, get behind women's funds like Global Fund for Women because they're supporting women in the U.S. to do the kind of work that needs to be done, as well as um, women like me in my region and sisters across the globe uh, making a difference. And um, we've got to keep the work going. So thanks for the support, but look forward to the continued support as well.
0: That's great. Thank you. And thank uh, all of you for uh, joining us for today's virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World Forum featuring Sharon Bagwan-Rolls, board co-chair for the Global Fund for Women. Also with us, Gina Torrey, director of the International Center for Dialogue and Peacebuilding, and Dr. Anna Poles, senior lecturer at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at Massey University. In New Zealand. Happy Dog Takes on the World is presented with the support of an anonymous donor. And is a collaborative effort between the City Club of Cleveland, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the Happy Dog, the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle Eastern Studies, and IdeaStream. We do appreciate the partnership. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by a number of organizations, many generous donors, sponsors, and members. You can find a full list at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join us November 10th at 7.30 p.m. as we contemplate the forum policy inbox of our next president, whoever that may be. I am Tony Ganzer. Our forum is now adjourned. Thanks so much for being here.